Not one single country today has policies in place aligned with the 1.5 degree trajectory, meaning they may have targets, they may have rhetoric, they may have all kinds of contributions to COP meetings and things like that. But the analysis looks at actually our policies in place on the governmental level to transform these economies on these lower emission pathways. And currently, not one country does. Terrifying. And completely, completely unacceptable, given that we're not one year after Paris. We're almost eight years after the Paris Climate Agreement. Hi, welcome back. Today, my guest is Jeremy Tamanmini, founder of Jewel Citizen and creator of the Global Green Economy Index. For the past decade, Jeremy has collaborated on projects with governments, businesses and international organisations at the intersection of data and sustainability. He's worked in over 30 markets, ranging from the government of Denmark to an NGO in the Pacific Islands. His goal is to empower his partners to better understand what sustainability means to them and how data, communication and new technology can accelerate the progress. The Global Green Economy Index, created by Jeremy, covers 160 countries and measures national sustainability performance across 18 indicators and tracks the degree of progress each country has made between 2005 and 2020, and, critically, its distance from globally established sustainability targets. The GGEI is an ESG index that has gained widespread global recognition with over 250,000 downloads and 100-plus media and academic citations, and is used by over 100 government institutions and private firms. Jeremy holds a master's degree in foreign policy from Georgetown School of Foreign Service, a bachelor's degree in urban studies and economics from Columbia University, and was a Fulbright Scholar in the United Arab Emirates and just finished a Bellagio residency through the Rockefeller Foundation, where he worked on writing and data collection related to the theme Climate Paradox, which we discuss in this episode. And his recently published essay, Climate Paradox and How We Solve It, is linked in the show notes. Now, over to Jeremy. Jeremy, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. That's great. Where do I find you today? You find me in on the islands of Manhattan in New York City. Oh, uh, I'm so envious. Yes, where we first met, actually. Yeah. Just a few blocks away from our Flatiron meeting spot in Chelsea. So, Yeah, inside the agency was called Purpose. Yeah, it seems like decades ago, even though it was only... Four years, three years. Yeah, it's so, crazy. How, how the world has changed. How the world has changed. But um, you are a change maker, storyteller, difference maker. So we're going to talk about your story. So having established what you currently do, let's jump in with the big fundamental questions about, first of all, who are you as a human being? Who am I? You know, I, I thought about this question and I went back to my inner child, which we all talk about a lot. And I think if I were to define who I am as a human being, I'm a very shy person. This is not a big sweeping, you know, declaration about purpose or change making. I was born a really shy kid, very sensitive. And that was troublesome. It was it was an obstacle when I was young. When I think of my life, I think of how interviews and people and experiences are still 
daunting to me almost intuitively. And I'm one of those people that has deceptively developed very good social skills and very good ability to make everyone seem at ease, which tends to obscure the fact that I'm not always at ease. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of kind of who I am. Another piece that also maybe contradicts that a little bit or is counterintuitive is I'm a person that has always been most stimulated in uncomfortable environments. And those are all different kinds of things, uncomfortable topics, uncomfortable social situations, uncomfortable places in the world. I tend to gravitate towards unsettled areas of life, which again is maybe not in my best interest given my fundamental shyness and sensitivity to the world. Or maybe it's kind of like I emerged into life with this shyness and hesitancy that I worked, worked, worked to overcome. And now I'm just kind of always in the mode of challenging that core aspect of myself. So those are two kind of tangibles. Can you Um, give an example? Well, I think the work I do, you know, I think that the, the space around sustainability and, and data and climate crisis and the ecological breakdown that we're facing is much more in the mix of conversation today, but it really hasn't been. There's always been general, as long as I've been working on it, which is about a decade, there's always been generalized, you know, interest and sort of, oh, tell me more. But it's actually not a very comfortable space because Mm -hmm. it's a space where there's inherently lots of unknowns. The entire concept of our climate crisis is based upon scenarios and it's based upon projections. And there's also no clear solution. There's no silver bullet. There's no like, oh, if we did this, it would all be fine. We just don't know. So professionally, I would say is a space of discomfort that perhaps will last, you know, the rest of my career. There was someone I interviewed that said you have to learn we have to learn to become comfortable with ambiguity rather than be, live with certainty. It might be Eckhart Tolle, perhaps. You know, uncertainty is this thing where it can go one of two ways. You can either let it be insidious mm-hmm. and break you down, or you can think of it as opportunity. You can think of all of the discovery and revelation and progress over time that uncertainty can bring because with uncertainty comes uncovering newness. So it's definitely, you could see it two ways. I think for me, I've always find it curious that I'm so drawn to uncertain environments. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's t- t- affected your your values and the principles that you live by? I think that it's helped me grow personally, you know, just with the professional. I think a lot of what I do around measurement and quantifying aspects of green economy and different climate crisis topics is almost an attempt to add certainty, to mm-hmm. add sort of control. And in life, as in our personal lives, as social beings, there's that struggle too. There's that tension between surrender and allowing 
sort of the course of life to unfold and intention and control, which can be a kind of more severe form of being intentional. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's affected my personal life and how I live my life by just making me more conscious of that tension, I guess, and, and being more comfortable as I get older with uncertainty, with surrendering to outcome. You know, I, I really try to go into experiences of life where there's unknown with releasing outcome, right? So you can have passion, you can have all kinds of interest in things, but the most productive way to harness that passion is in preparation. It's mm -hmm. in service. It's in showing up the best you can. But once you do that, just release because you have no control over over what kind of outcome mm -hmm. may or may not uh, materialize. We're sort of leading into the second question, big question, which is who or what made you you? It's interesting when you talk about embracing uncertainty, ambiguity, and forcing yourself in there. It's like that intentional, conscious action. A lot of people don't do that. What was the impact of parents, siblings, mentors? It's hard to say. There were two examples I thought of. Our evolution through space and time and people is so complicated over so many years. I think on a professional level, I was influenced a lot by my grandfather, which is ironic because my American, I have dual nationality parents. My mother's American and my father's Italian. My American grandfather died when I was five. So I didn't know him well. I remember moments with him, but in that sort of very young way where they're not crystal, crystal clear and the conversations weren't necessarily that in depth. Mm. Like he was a systems thinker around the very issues that I work on. He was, he was a lot of things in his career. And one of the most direct links was that he, while well, he was a professor at MIT later on in his career, introduced Jay Forrester, who was a systems modeler, to the Club of Rome in the early 1970s. And that collaboration, along with various other contributors and authors, led to the publication of Limits to Growth, a very interesting book, which I hope... An MIT uh, publication. Yes, and an MIT publication and something that I think is at the very center of what I'm working on, what we're dealing with as a society today. And so, and just quickly, Limits to Growth is based on modeling in the early 70s around the intersection of human population growth, resource use, and, and the earth, and kind of what that all looks like as time passes. And projections were that 40 to 50 years from that point, which is now, things would really start breaking down. In That's incredible. Yeah. Do you know what's it's amazing? It's that that's a deeply serendipitous experience, the fact that you are doing working in an area that's driven by data that is in an, uh, an area grounded in an insight and research and systems thinking that started back in the 70s by your grandfather. And it's interesting on another level, which is that it never was an influence that was that concrete in uh -huh. my life. I never, I didn't study systems modeling in graduate school. I'm not an economist. 
I'm not an environmental economist. I didn't go through life thinking with, you know, limits to growth as the Bible by the side of my bed. It's just a, when you ask me about influences, it's a big influence. It's uh-huh. the, the ethos, the values, the system of, of thinking about the world that your family can pass down to you in tangible and intangible ways. That's incredible. Because back, yeah, back then, I mean, there wasn't, I think I said this on a recent podcast because climate's come up a lot. I think my first memory of environmental concerns were probably in the sort of the mid 80s when I started reading about Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and the ozone issues we were facing with aerosols and things that you became really conscious of it. And, but really at that time, you know, it wasn't, it, it was, it wasn't mainstream. The idea that we, we would have limits to our growth projections, whether it be in terms of population, carbon emissions, the impact on environment, on temperatures. It just really wasn't in the mainstream. So it's. Yeah, I'd go further and say, not just was it not in the mainstream, it was actively argued against, it was actively resisted. I mean, think of the 1980s, you know, the rise of neoliberalism, the crescendo of the Cold War and the triumph of capitalism over over communism. You know, everything in that era was about justifying mm-hmm. the lack of limits to growth, the uh, constant expansiveness mm-hmm. and positive outcomes that growth in a capitalist system could bring. So it was a very radical position to take Mm. at that moment in time and has been proven quite prescient, but didn't certainly did not break through into the mainstream at that moment as, okay, this is the new guidelines for for Mm. moving forward. The fact that organizations, corporations like Exxon did the research, they knew what the impact fossil fuel extraction was going to be and they buried it and you know at the same time you know you got what you're saying about the sort of the the fall of communism and the fall of the berlin wall and i remember the book the end of history francis fukuyama being published and we thought yep that's it it's just this unipolar world now it's all over everything's everything's optimistic rosy there's going to be world peace and world order yeah and yet we had no idea that lurking in the background were these externalities that were coming at us like a freight train or a tidal wave to hit us and then wake us up from our dream. <laughs> yeah. So, right. Just a matter of interest. Do you, do you have siblings? I do have a wonderful sister, Vanessa, who uh, also influences me a lot um, in terms of her absolutely a different approach to life. She is, very in touch with sensory feelings, human interactions. She has a very different, I I tend to be way too cerebral, way too analytical, and maybe she's a bit too much on the other side, but she's a wonderful compliment to me. And yeah, another, another just one second influence I wanted to bring up Mm -hmm. to answer question is my thesis advisor in undergraduate studies professor judith russell Mm -hmm. was a huge influence on me for a different reason 
because she, I was an urban studies and economics major and undergraduate, and I decided to write my senior thesis about the redevelopment of Times Square in New York City, mm. which was happening at the time under Giuliani. And there was all kinds of cleanups happening, along with trying to attract companies back into Times Square. And I had this abstract idea about the aura of Times Square. I was very interested in the role of like billboards and new buildings and development and how this created an aura around a neighborhood that would attract investment or tourism. And it kind of made sense, but it was very abstract. And she loved it. And she said, you know what? This is super interesting, but you have got to figure out how to write a thesis about this that is tangible that is based in examples and outcomes and theories academically that you can reference and urban history. Mm. And I did. And what that taught me was number one, that she was excited about the idea. I think it gave me confidence in just having abstract, complicated ideas, but equally, if not more important, it taught me how to, express those ideas in ways that are digestible and tangible and legitimate and sort of accessible. And that's something I've always remembered because sometimes when I get too excited about the idea, I try to bring myself back to earth by how do I express, explain, illuminate this idea in language, data, visuals that are compelling and legitimate and makes sense. So that was another very important influence. Interesting. It's almost tangential to, it's an environmental, hyper-local environmental sort of focus, mm-hmm. but not really touching on the issues and the, the, the data and the subject matter that you're now focused on. Yeah. And for the first, for my 20s, I worked in marketing, in corporate marketing. I was absolutely part of a very capitalistic, corporate, mainstream vocation. And yeah, I think, you know, I've always been a creature of my surroundings. And I think one thing I always remember is like context and where society's at at that moment do impact us. They imp- it impacts me. I mean, I do not consider myself an audacious radical that's that's taking on the world in in super radical ways. I'm I'm someone who I think is doing interesting work, but but at that time I definitely did not have have a lot of the issues that are at the forefront of, of my work today on my mind really but to be fair were they really even in the public discourse that much the 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 next big question which is let's talk about what you're working to achieve before you shuffle off this mortal coil going from that thesis to marketing corporate marketing to what you're doing now something triggered change in mindset to take you on this different path to doing what you're doing now so perhaps you could talk to us about that yeah absolutely you know, it, it like a lot of things in my life, it wasn't a trigger. Or it was kind of just like 
I got to a point where I realized very clearly about purpose and about mission and that I just fundamentally was a person that had to have those things embedded in what I did every day. And it's really was just a simple feeling for me. It wasn't like I had this amazing meeting with someone or I went to a conference that inspired me or I had an emotional meltdown. It just kind of was this feeling after a certain number of years working in more corporate marketing that that I just realized, you know what, I need to, because any job is a lot of work. You know, even if you're doing a lot of jobs that are very traditional or very corporate, as we say, or very market driven, it's a lot of work. So you figure like, where am I going to put that time? Where am I going to put that passion? And interestingly, back to sort of my thesis in college, the bridge I found into the policy space was through a very similar project that I did through a Fulbright grant in the United Arab Emirates, where I did a project with the government in Dubai about place branding and economic development in Dubai. So this was similar in a way to what I was doing through my senior thesis around Times Square. It was this idea of how did Dubai use a sense of place branding, you know, branding itself as a tourism destination, building a lot of excitement and imagery around buildings that may or may not be built. How did, you know, creating at the time something that was very novel was this idea of this Middle Eastern city. This was just a, several years after 9-11 where, you know, there was a lot of tension around the Middle East and the U.S. and the Iraq war. And suddenly this this city and this idea of living in this hyper-modern way came up through Dubai's development. So that was a bridge that I found from, from the sort of corporate trajectory I was on to then grad school and, and starting my practice. So even that place branding yes. from going to, from there, it's not an obvious link to no. building what you've created, which is called the global green economy index. Um, you've trademarked, which is a, essentially a way to measure the green economy performance of 160 countries across the 18 indicators. I mean, that is completely sort of data-led, grounded yes. in, going back to what you said about your grandfather's work and in limits to growth, explain the link between where you were with working on place branding and to, to there. Well, I will, because, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's ex interesting to think back on this because the first edition of the Global Green Economy Index in 2010 was a survey. And it wasn't about quantitative measurement of green economy, as, which is what it is today. It was actually about perceptions. So with a group of environmental climate folks from D.C., we surveyed people around their perceptions of countries, which countries are doing well, which aren't, which, po which countries have policies that are viable and interesting, which don't. And again, remember, this was 2010. This was... But way before the global goals. 
way before the global goals, way before the Paris Climate Agreement and the SDGs. But there were still there was still talk about this. I mean, there was um, Copenhagen had happened. Obama was trying to get some type of you know green stimulus, recovery bill, and things like that. But to answer your question, the first edition was all about perception, like how do people perceive countries on these different criteria? And from that, so there was some linkage there to place branding and, you know, development of Times Square and marketing. And and that's kind of where my head was coming from. And very quickly, we got the feedback on that first iteration of the index that oh, this is interesting, but wouldn't it be interesting to look at performance? Wouldn't Mm -hmm. it be interesting to actually build a model to quantify the actual performance of of these countries, which were only 27 at the time that we were tracking? And from there, the story began around this much more Mm data-driven, quantitative modeling of, of green economy performance in countries. Wow. The core of the index is defined by the four dimensions that you have, which I believe are climate change and social equity, sector decarbonization, markets and ESG investment, and environmental health. How did those, if this was done before the the creation of the global goals and the framework that that uses, how did you zero in on those four those four um, dimensions. Yeah, well, there. I mean, there was literature. the The green economy as a concept had been introduced through the UN Environment Program and other NGOs and entities around it. So it wasn't like there was nothing to work with. And remember, you know, making linkages. You know, the green economy approach to this topic is a system wide approach. So we're not just looking at emissions. We're not just looking at biodiversity. We're not just looking at renewable energy insulation or, you know, green investment. We're looking at this entire system as a whole. And in that sense, you know, and again, the the product has evolved a lot over the past decade. And so these indicators weren't the exact ones used 10 years ago. But this general idea that we have an environmental and a social and an economic piece to the green economy and that we can look at that system through these different dimensions, as I call them, does have quite a bit of, you know, academic analysis behind it, lots of NGO analysis. And then today, thankfully, a lot of work in the private sector around what that looks like in companies, what it looks like from the perspective of investing, et cetera. Interesting. So what it started as and where it is today is very different because you're, you released an update to the index this year. Uh, was this year, last year? It was last year, last yeah. Year. Yeah, with two major enhancements. One to track the performance of improvement or the decline in measures of corporations and countries. And the other, an indicator to allow people to calculate the distance we have to go to hit the targets and to meet our overall sort of targets to limit our temperature increases to 1.5 degrees, which doesn't look realistic at the moment. What would your 
I mean, your current assessment being so data driven of where we stand against the sort of the targets that the Paris Accord set? Yeah, well, that question, you know, that really is why that enhancement to the methodology was was introduced, because as we rounded the corner into the 2020s, I realized that, you know, we're falling behind, we're way behind. There was a lot of learning and a lot of target setting and a lot of testing in the 2010s, which natural given what a new complicated topic it was. But then time started to pass and you're kind of like, well, is progress being made or not? And that was a big driver in the Global Green Economy Index to start to define rankings around this idea of progress and distance from targets. Because if you don't have that type of accountability in your measurement framework, it's not entirely clear what your results are saying. I mean, I can measure all kinds of things. And if I'm just doing a relative ranking, you know, I can say, Jeremy is the number one tennis player in the world compared to Mark. Well, Mark might not play tennis. So you're not really saying something just by speaking relatively or measuring relatively. You're saying a lot more, especially around this topic, when you are you're looking at progress. So you're looking at the rate of progress too, because new analysis that's starting to come around carbon emissions, for example, is starting to be able to quantify for different countries the rate of decarbonization that's necessary annually to reach certain targets like Paris schools, et cetera. So we're starting to really connect what's happening year to year versus what needs to happen to get to a certain point. So I think it's just a much more usable format because we are way behind. Um, I mean, there's 18 different topics to speak to, but if we speak to the most sort of obvious one, the one that gets the most attention around emissions, Mm -hmm. we have not one single country today has policies in place aligned with the 1.5 degree trajectory, meaning they may have targets, they may have rhetoric, they may have all kinds of contributions to COP meetings and things like that. But the analysis, which is done by an NGO in Germany called Climate Action Tracker, which I encourage everyone to check out, looks at actually our policies in place on the governmental level to transform these economies on these lower emission pathways. And currently, not one country does, which is terrifying and completely, completely unacceptable, um, given that we're not one year after Paris. You know, we're almost we're almost eight years after the Paris Climate Agreement. Every cop, I mean, everyone turns up the great and the good and makes these proclamations of intent yeah. and that we're making progress. And yet... Is it just all rhetoric? Well, and that's where it gets into the word, the terminology, right? Because, and that's what's so complicated about this issue. You can make progress, but you can still not be aligned with a 1.5 degree trajectory. So, you know, we can be 
you know, making progress addressing the climate crisis. But that does not mean we are not in a climate crisis. So it's kind of, it's, it's a tricky thing where we have to really get real about holding those two things in tandem. Uh-huh. And, yeah. What do you think we're on target for? I mean, I think that we are, let's see, I think if I look at the SDGs, for example, I think that we are making a lot of progress around things like mobile penetration, um, internet access, and there's some health metrics that have improved a lot around the health of infants and some social equality metrics like that. I think that that is hopeful. And I say that just because I think that there's a lot of efficiency and actual decarbonization that can be enabled through mobile technology and integrating that with the grid and other types of distributed energy systems. So I'd say that's good progress. And I'd say that we are making great progress around the cost of renewable energy, which has plummeted over the past decade, just as many people predicted. That's really positive. I think we're making progress around convening and being sure to be talking and seeking solutions across different uh, stakeholders. So there are areas, absolutely. And, and let's be honest, like, you know, many, not all, but many large economies are decarbonizing in the sense that they are reducing um, the carbon intensity of their economies. The problem is, is this is a collective action problem. This is a problem that is all about what we do as a global community. And so, you know, there's all kinds of other places where emissions are increasing and there's all kinds of equity questions around that as well. So very well, tricky ones. Since the pandemic, I mean, was another, so I suppose, a pandemic around people's perception to journalism and what is truth, data mm-hmm. and facts. So this, with the polarization, of political polarization that exists in the world today, few people can trust their traditional media sources. So what you read in one publication is often contradicted in another. Where are the places that are where emissions are increasing, that where they're not doing enough? Generally speaking, what's happening is the developed global north, if you will, has an enormous historical and present, but certainly the majority of historical contributions to greenhouse gas emissions. And in the same breath, many of those countries, countries like the United States, um, Germany, etc., are positioned today to decarbonize and need to decarbonize at a faster rate due to the stage of development they're at, the type of technologies they have, their population trajectories, etc., other developing more global south, and, and I'll just say developing because this includes China, are at a very different moment in their development where they have a much lower contribution historically to global greenhouse gas emissions. But today's moment are growing extremely rapidly with huge populations, by the way, seeking 
all the things that many Western countries touted just a few decades ago as sort of the limitless growth model, right? Like everyone needs a car and a dishwasher and whatever. So of course, but what that brings, of course, is a much higher carbon intensity to those economies. And when you then multiply that by these enormous populations, Mm -hmm. that's where you start to see the imbalance where you could have an amazing decarbonization story in a country or an economy like Germany, but it may not impact the global story that much. So you have countries that are growing at phenomenal rates and estimated population growth for India is to be the largest population on the planet in the next couple of decades. And if if people justifiably have ambitions to have access to all the things that the, the, the global north and the west have had why should they be denied but how do we do that in a sustainable way is is, is a question and you maybe you could reflect on that but also you did a survey that i i filled out <laughs> a few months ago where you talked about the climate paradox where and i've quoted this a couple of times in interviews with people where you say that you're through your data, the observation that people, products and policies of governments say are, are building momentum. The, the emissions, social inequity and environmental health is actually worsening. And that paradox, so you, try, you were trying to, to get a sense of what is it? And I suppose my question to you would be, do you have an answer to that? Absolutely. It's interesting making the connections. So as I described, the beginning of the Global Green Economy Index started with a survey. And what happened over the last decade was that we developed this pretty large database of experts who had really qualified knowledge around the environmental and climate issues we were dealing with. So the survey was really looking backwards and forwards. It was saying, kind of what happened in the 2010s, what worked, what didn't, what do we want to happen in the 2020s? How could things maybe be configured differently? And then in the second and third wave of the surveying, this more targeted question around paradox. So this idea that we can observe so many examples of positive momentum in terms of overall public awareness, in terms of governmental awareness, in terms of private sector activity and innovation, in terms of activism, in terms of product development, in terms of renewable energy pricing. I mean, the list goes on and on of the real momentum that has developed around addressing the climate crisis. Yet, When we look at these top line indicators related to greenhouse gas emissions or the environment like biodiversity and oceans or social equity, I don't want to say every one of them is just plummeting on a constant basis, but they certainly do not feel they're certainly not improving in the way that one might expect related to given the amount of momentum that's emerged in the areas that I described. So I thought about this. We asked a lot of the survey respondents for their opinions, and it was really surprising. You know, these surveys are usually pretty wonky affairs. You know, they're pretty much 
focused on like policies and incentives and things like that. And the feedback that we got was so different. It was much more emotional and forward-looking. And I'll share with you some of the the words that came out. People were talking about the need for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, the op- idea of sanctioning non-compliance of countries' emission targets, the need to go beyond GDP. So come up with another key indicator as an alternative to GDP that better reflected green economy or environmental considerations. Systems approach, a lot of feedback around we need to cancel the talk show and walk the walk. A couple of people actually mentioned pop cultural references, like could we have a green James Bond? Could we have this issue embedded more in pop culture that is such a mass thing? So to answer your question, the feedback on one level was very kind of much more forward-looking and pushing the envelope than I normally expect from this type of survey. But people also had very tangible suggestions. And I'm going to give one example that's linked to the climate negotiations. So one of the most tangible suggestions had to do with how the COP is structured and this idea that we actually maybe don't need 190 or whatever it is countries all agreeing to emission reduction targets, when in fact, really, it's just a handful of countries that are mostly responsible. So what if those handful of countries got kind of separated out? So I'm talking about the US and China and India and EU. And there's a parallel discussion there around mitigation, which is about how do we mitigate emissions? And rather, the COP process really becomes focused on adaptation, because the paradox for many people we interviewed in the global south is actually that they're even they're like, we're dealing with the climate crisis. It's here. Like we, we have no time for discussions around targets and whatever. We're dealing with it in our communities. We're dealing with it in the impact economically on our livelihoods. So to them, the paradox is like that they're being forced, small countries in the global south are being forced to the table around reducing emissions and targets in these lengthy, lengthy negotiations on a piece to the puzzle that doesn't really concern them. They're not a contributor to emissions. And also historically, they haven't been. So let's then maybe make the cop around adaptation, around loss and damage, around transfer of financing from the global north to the global south to deal with some of the consequences that are already happening. So that was an idea. There were some other creative ideas around um, compliance. The World Trade Organization has a body that deals with dispute resolution. And while it doesn't have an enforcement mechanism, it does apply peer pressure. Like if you're a country that's breaking the rules from a trade perspective, you go in front of this body and you're kind of scolded yeah. and you're asked to remedy your behavior. So there was suggestions that something like that in the climate negotiations could be useful to just start to illuminate a lot of what we were talking about earlier, which is when actions just are not aligned with rhetoric and having a way through the process that countries that violate that are 
shown to be doing so to the public. The, I mean, the, what you just described is just go common sense, brilliant ideas. How do you make that? How do you take yeah. those just from sort of suggestions through a survey to to the right people where these can be adopted? Well, unfortunately, that's an almost insurmountable mountain when you think of a UN process and the need for consensus and the way negotiations are, are structured. But I will say that I think that's where the grassroots really come in and that's where the NGOs really come in. Because what we've seen is that that bottom-up approach is can be extremely effective at illuminating these contradictions and the paradox. And a lot of times, you know, I think there's room for those forces to just break through the process and to just loudly state through their platforms, through their communication channels, and apply pressure strategically on different stakeholders. Because that's kind of been the story of this issue in many ways. It's not like no one from positions of power, be it governments or titans of industry are like spearheading, you know, things for the past decades. It's it's really a bottom-up pressure point, I think. I mean, I don't know what you're planning to do to affect that grassroots adoption and broad-based awareness of these suggestions but it does feel like as you describe them i'm sort of seeing in my in my mind the the creation of almost like a declaration or a set of new policies similar to the like an open letter that the the people against ai wanting a pause on that were published and saying here are it could be something that you gather together here are 10 common sense climate environmental policy changes as a call to action on global governments to adopt and you get people to become signatories to it and that publish that declaration somewhere so NGOs can then, I mean, I think it's going to be a come down to, I mean, this, this thing, we both have backgrounds in branding and marketing and advertising is how do you tell that story? Cause you can give, yeah. you've, you've got all the data, but it's stories that, to, that change behaviors and opinions and attitudes. So if you could create some sort of branding around this and people go, this is such, this is a common sense way to move forward. We're going to adopt it. So whether it be an NGO that, that, that signs up and they have some sort of statement or branding on their site or, or corporations can say, we sign up to this accord or this declaration. Mm-hmm. You can start to see that becoming in the, in the, the, the mainstream narrative that it, has to be then discussed at a COP or in the back channels to, in the planning of these the, the next COP or even in a World Economic Forum or in the corridors at the UN. And I think you're, you're highlighting a really, you asked about where are we making progress? You know, we're making progress around collaboration and around multi-stakeholder engagement with this. So... I'm not the person to establish that declaration. I'm the person to do the research, write some essays, talk to you, talk to other people, publish data and measurement on things. But what's wonderful about the 2020s is that 
the ecosystem of tools and approaches to this um, issue has become enormous. So to your point, there's obviously huge strides around activism. There's huge strides around on the corporate side and how companies and private sector actors are involved in this. There's huge strides around storytelling. A lot of the books that you and I have talked about, I know that we talked about the Drawdown uh, book a few years ago. There's all kinds of voices now that are approaching this issue of climate paradox, environmental degradation, whatever you want to call it, through different voices and different approaches. And that's what's encouraging to me, I guess, is just I think there's a certain point where that becomes so large and so mainstream and so integrated into every you know, channel of our lives, communications and our communities and our consumption habits and our investment, that that's where then you really start to have um, scalability and hopefully much accelerated uh, progress. Just as a sort of slight tangent, I've spoken to a number of people with different perspectives on, on climate. Some people believe that it's, you know, like a, a Joshua Spodek who has gone off the grid in New York. It's been recently published in Time and other uh, publications in the New York Times, I think, did a piece on him and lives in the West Village. He thinks it's individuals. We all individually can have an impact. Others believe it's governments. Others, like Bracken Darrell, who I interviewed recently from Logitech, think it's a responsibility and the pace of change can really be accelerated if corporations embrace net positive targets. And that's where the, the, the impact is going to be felt. Where do, what's your perspective? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think, I mean, I think number one, we can't relinquish responsibility just because it looks dire, just because it's frustrating. We can't just give up and say that it's not some, it can't be addressed. So I'm not a believer in nihilism. I'm not a believer personally in sort of going off the grid. I think we all have to kind of like deal with what we've been dealt and this is our moment in history. So from that perspective, I think individuals are incredibly important. So for me, when I think of individuals, I think of like community organizing. I think of, you know, my co-op in New York City and making decisions that are more energy efficient or getting solar panels for our roof or on a slightly broader level, like my community in Chelsea and hearing from my city council member that like three new bike lanes have been put in and new stations. Eric and, Botcher. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, to me, that's what individual means. It doesn't mean as much like paper straws and that kind of thing. It's, and that's happening. I mean, you look at what the power of like community action is, and a lot of it can be resistance on the other side. It can be resisting developing you know, a new coal plant nearby. It can be resisting forces that are, are moving in the opposite direction. So hugely important. But I think I always point out this whole idea of like individual footprint 
is actually kind of an invention of the fossil fuel industry. So if you think of like BP and the early 2000s were really focused on like your footprint calculator and kind of like what's your contribution. And I worry that like if we get too individually focused, we take our eye off the main issue, which has to do with this problem being actually quite centralized around fewer actors. So if you look at, you know, there are very few entities that own the majority of fossil fuel investments. There are very few buildings in New York City that are responsible for most of emissions. There's kind of this like 80-20 rule that applies to a lot of this discussion. Really? I mean, I, I understand from a, obviously you, you could identify all the big investments that go into fossil fuel companies and the pension from the big pension plans and you know you look at the the oil company giants and all that yeah i could see that they are you could identify that small majority but when you talk about buildings in new york that that surprises me oh yeah there's and again it goes back to the individual discussion it's great i might get solar panels on the roof of my co-op it is Scaling that across every residential building in New York City as efficient right now as targeting that 20 or 22% or whatever it is of buildings that are responsible for such a large percentage mm -hmm. of the city's emissions. You could identify those buildings. You can look it up. I mean, there's, there's a whole list of them that are, that are, that are out there. And, and this 80 20 rule in general is very much at play when you kind of look at like, you know, where, where different assets, you know, the, the contribution, if you look at a state, for example, and you look at the emissions portfolio of a state, well, look carefully at what's driving the majority of emissions. You're probably going to find that it's a very isolated, smaller set of, of actors. So my point is not that individual action doesn't or shouldn't matter, but we also should get real about kind of what the policies are to efficiently target where the root of the problem is and how you design that policy is obviously very complicated but it's it's one different kind of way of thinking about it i think just to add to that there's a great publication called the breakthrough effect that was just published through an organization called system iq and the university of exeter and i encourage all your listeners to check it out you can find it online and kind of in a similar way around targeting policies to those disproportionate contributors to emissions, the thesis of the breakthrough effect is about tipping points in product development. So they identify three tipping points around electric vehicles, green ammonia use in fertilizer production, and plant-based proteins. And they argue very persuasively how Really zeroing in on these three areas in terms of policy support, investment, et cetera, 
could enable them to become enormous tipping points more broadly for the green energy, the green transition. So given the example of electric vehicles, the idea is you're, you're investing in electrical, electric vehicle adoption, but in doing so, <clears throat> you're having a massive effect on the battery industry, hopefully greatly lowering the cost of batteries, hopefully having impacts downstream on the renewable energy sector and the ability to have greater storage of solar and wind power. And they do the same type of analysis for green ammonia and in fertilizer and the plant-based proteins. And I bring that up, that example, just as another slightly different way of thinking where it's like, maybe we don't need to reinvent everything everywhere all at once, but instead we can target a bit more strategically on who are the main contributors to renewable energy? Is there a real skew there where we could target um, certain actors in innovative ways? Where are product tipping points where we can focus capital in ways that might lead to huge transformational effects that wouldn't happen if we spread the capital more, e- more evenly across, across different sectors? I think, so that's, fact- I think that's where... I know I think I put in the questions, mentioned the book by John Doerr, Speed and Scale, where he really has broken down in terms of the different industries and saying, okay, these ones can have this significant impact, transformative impact and identifying where, what the big, the areas of focus should be if we want to actually sort of meet these targets. And I think, yeah, certainly electrification and transportation is one of the ones that he really focuses on in on yeah that that is interesting i'll put that in the in the show notes so in terms of the you know the in a way it's going back again to think like you say this keeps coming back to your grandfather and the systems thinking approach that we do need to be rather than just going out with a with all these issues the 17 sdgs and that everyone's responsible everyone has to meet the targets you go, no, this is a design thinking process. This is a system thinking. We need to be smarter um, about how we approach this. And at the moment, that systems thinking, design thinking approach isn't being adopted by the, well, let's say, decision make, key decision makers in positions of power in government, in organizations like the UN. So that's maybe something that there, there needs to be a broader narrative around that more to the fore in the sort of the mainstream narrative. Cause I don't, it's not, that's not something we read about or hear about on our, in our news channels and our news feeds. Yeah. And I think if it's such a crisis, which I believe it is, do we need a different form of organization to address it? Do we need different a different institution or a different form of stakeholder uh, coordination? Uh-huh. A lot of our institutions are potentially a bit dated based on different problems, different configurations of the world. And if you are open to that, to the, the question I just posed, who are the people and the institutions and the ideas and the, the way of thinking, as you're, as you're mentioning, that inform what that looks like? And 
it's tricky because every job is tough. It's really tough to be a climate negotiator. You know, it's really tough to be a systems thinker. It's really tough to have a podcast. It's really tough to publish an index. Like, it's not about blaming like one group or another. It's more about how do we cross pollinate? So how, for example, if a new type of institution is created, who has a seat at the table at um, deciding what that looks like? And that has to do with um, function and being interdisciplinary. And it has to do with global diversity. You know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the global south, south feels tremendously excluded from the current COP process and feels like it's still even, even after last year where there was a lot more focus on loss and damage still feels as though it's really a global North process and institution. So I like that question and that approach, whether or not we'll get to that point in fast enough is, is another question. I heard it. I can't remember who, told me this but it was a really interesting stat that if you actually look at in the u.s the biggest contributor to emissions in the u.s because you were talking about the 80 20 rule that mm-hmm. pretty optimum it's, it's the military so if you had to do anything you would look at the, what's the the electrification strategy of the u.s military yeah and and to be fair to the pentagon you know they were in terms of climate risk, but also in terms of awareness of renewable energy solutions, batteries, like the security of energy sources, they were in a way ahead of the curve relative to other, some other U.S. government agencies. So yeah, it's, it's a huge area of possibility given the amount of, of money involved there. So you, yeah, you, you, you touched on there that the well through that that mention of the breakthrough effect that there are in system IQ that there are these three ways we could have significant pr- progress by bringing a more sy- system thinking approach to solving these problems these challenges. There are people out there that are naysayers, or naysayers also, but they, they maybe think that the the data. And that, that, that some of the data is being either misread or misrepresented. For example, I recently heard an interview with someone called Bjorn Lomberg, who's written a book called Skeptical Environmentalist. And he argues that climate change is causing more harm than good and that leaders have committed and wildly took wildly expensive, but largely ineffective policies. And maybe. You know, that is reflected in the, in the fact that your climate paradox, as it suggests, we're not meeting the targets. And he says that we should be doing more to focus on human capital and immunization to education rather than some of these blunt policies. What would your reaction or what would be your retort to, to, to Bjorn if you were sitting with him around the table? Well, I will leave so... At London School of Economics, someone named Bob Ward has written an excellent refutation of of this line of thinking, going very specifically into the data 
that's used for a lot of the projections in this book. So I would refer readers there because it's like a very, it's a very point by point analysis of some of the holes in skeptical environmental, I believe is the name of it. Okay. Environmentalist Mm -hmm. is the name of the book. So beyond that though, I mean, I don't know, like, You always have to question, I think, people today that are like, oh, the markets will figure it out because Bjorn Lumber believes a lot in, like, innovation and, like, carbon taxes. And it's kind of like, well, first of all, markets aren't working for a lot of people in the United States, in the global north, in the global south. Like, markets are not magically working in general, much less on this particular issue. and. You know, I would love it if there were a climate tax in the United States. I mean, there's such where I am sympathetic to a piece of his argument is that I don't believe taxpayers should be footing the bill for this transition. And if you look at a lot of the spending and the Inflation Reduction Act, et cetera, it's government spending. Yes, to stimulate private sector and other things. But this is just an externality that needs to be dealt with through market mechanisms. The problem is we can't get any market mechanisms passed in most economies based on all kinds of issues, um, a lot of them political and based on lobbying. So, and again, it's like, it's just, it's kind of this view of like, oh no, it's not really a thing. Why, Why should we subsidize renewable energy? the way that we do. But in this book, there's no mention of like fossil fuel subsidies, which are multiple times higher than what they are for renewable energy. Fossil fuel subsidies last year were in the trillions. So global fossil fuel subsidies. Can you can you shed some light on that? Because that, I only found out about that a couple of years ago. And you look at it and think, well, hang on a second. If the oil corporations are making these huge profits why do they need subsidized well it's it's another paradox right like even on a higher level how can governments that on the one hand and this is happening in almost every government in the world right now are both they're subsidizing both renewables and fossil fuels so we're spending taxpayer money on both sides of the coin which is just a completely misaligned incentives. It's tricky. I mean, the fossil fuel subsidy story means something very different in different contexts. There's issues around energy access and affordability, where the idea is that from the consumer side, the subsidy allows for greater affordability. There's obviously incentives in general, like, Oil and gas extraction is like any other industry. Producers look at incentives to decide, you know, what are the economics of extraction and location A versus location B. So, you know, there's maybe a market rationale. And in some particularly global South countries, there can be a rationale around energy access. But more broadly speaking, it's absolutely... Another example, I would say, of climate paradox, where you just have these like completely contradictory actions 
interacting in a way that seems almost insane. There's a lot of anxiety when you speak to people. Some people feel optimistic, others feel rage and outrage, and others feel just hopeless and helpless in the face of the scale of these challenges and the inability to you know, affect the change, you say, and the, the decision makers and the complexity surrounding it. So many, it's so multi-layered. But everyone's voice, everyone's voice matters. I mean, if you just take some of the things you've talked about, if more people were aware of the, the smart policies, decisions we could take, it would strip away some of the complexity and just the, the, the and really highlight. Let's say if we could sort of change the narrative and just focus on that, the, the, that 80 20 rule and the, the 20% where we could create massive strides of progress what would your advice be to if you're speaking to people to either corporate leaders or individuals or even governments what would you if you could sit down with them and advise them of something to to to, to do what actions to take what would you say you know it's funny i actually wouldn't so when we think about actions another aspect of the paradox is this strange reality that like we know the actions right so every policymaker every environment minister every you know every person that has a little bit of exposure to this issue they know the toolkit they know the the policies the investment incentives the the different pieces that can drive action so i don't think like for me, the conversation as much as is as much about like how do we prioritize those and do this or do that. I think it's more back to the eighty twenty discussion and tipping points. I think it's more about inspiring individuals to just individuals, policymakers, you know, whatever kind of level you're working at, to look for transformative opportunities, to look for the commercial opportunities, the people opportunities, the collaborative opportunities to that can potentially accelerate change and action in new ways. Because, I mean, so many of the toolkits like published, I mean, it's kind of like we don't need, I think, any more discussion about that. Like we have the toolkit in front of us Many of the tools are not being used for various reasons, which is kind of a whole different discussion. So where does that leave us? It leaves us very frustrated. It leaves us very demoralized. But to your point, it leaves us with kind of the necessity, I think, to think differently about how we frame the discussion to inspire people to zero in on opportunities for transformative change, for tipping points. And even in the smallest way, I mean, look at, look at Greta, you know, look at what that means to people, what she represents, how she speaks about these issues. I mean, she introduced a whole directness and accountability to language around this issue that didn't exist before her. And that's one young person. It's like, but she approached it differently. She she thought about how to frame things differently. So I think that would be more the tone and tenor of the conversations that I would have. When I interviewed John Alexander last week, and he wrote this brilliant book, Citizens, he doesn't 
focusing on growth or capitalism and or alternative systems, he focuses more on the fact that we've we've been caught up with a story called the consumer story that we can shop our way out of problems, whether it be a financial crashes, nine eleven, and he said that 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 story, the externalities of the story, it's clearly it's it's unraveling, it's falling apart, and it almost leads me to feel that we're we have to move away from a global economy, and that we will start to organise around smaller communities and smaller, more micro, local, hyper-local economies over time. And possibly it might be the result. Maybe what will needs the trigger point or the tipping point to get us to leave behind the, the consumer story and move to the citizen story will be a tipping point, not of the solutions that you're talking about, but more the actual climate calamity that's approaching us. Are you seeing in the the people you speak to, the data you're gathering, any evidence or references to how we have to think about our current story that we're all about consumption? You know, I I would argue we've seen it already, though. You know, I mean, think of the past five years. You know, we've had a global pandemic, which many could argue, you know, a lot of public health issues, a lot of this intrusion of humans into ecosystems is what's increasing the risk of pathogens being passed. So we've had that, which we talk about now, it's kind of past tense, like the COVID mm-hmm. pandemic. We lived through a global pandemic. This was the kind of thing you read about in foreign affairs, like top global risk that you wonder, could that really happen? It did. We've seen massive, massive climate-linked destruction having to do with floods, having to do with drought, having to do with wildfires. And this is destruction that's happened in ways that have devastated parts of the global south, homes in wealthy enclaves of California. I don't really know, like, what other evidence... I mean... It's like, and then you add to that all of the scientific measurements, the observation of, you know, the Brett Stevens from the New York Times suddenly, you know, sailing to the Arctic and having a realization that climate change is happening because he's seeing such dramatic changes to the iceberg. It's like, what else do we need to see from a kind of shock and awe perspective to convince people or to tip the scales. And that's, again, paradox, right? It's like we have all kinds of evidence in the most... People used to say, well, the problem with climate change, despite being a collective action dilemma, is that so many of the impacts are so abstract. You know, it's a forward-looking thing. It's something far in the future, that no one can really feel, they can't really experience, it's not really impacting them. But that's just not valid anymore. I mean, we are seeing it, we are feeling it. I mean, we are feeling our home environments change in terms of temperature and rainfall patterns. So, and this is me speaking from very developed urban New York Mm -hmm. City. Yeah. 
I, I know that that observation is only deeper for people that work agriculture for a living or are forest rangers or those type of jobs. So I think that we're seeing that evidence. We're experiencing it. It is emotionalized. And I'm not sure more of it mm-hmm. is going to change people's or change the trajectory unless perhaps there's some sort of event that unfortunately is much worse than what we've experienced. Mm. Well, hopefully that we'll, we'll see either through advances in AI and technology, some technological solutions that will help us solve some of these, these challenges as well and help us reach these tipping points. A question I ask a lot of guests is around just resilience and become remaining resolute. You're, you're going back to what you started with in terms of who are you? You talk, talked about leaning into that discomfort and you're never at a stage of being certain and reaching a point of, you know, where do, where do you, where do you get to a point where you go, yeah, I've, I've achieved, there's no, there's no success and failure for you. You're just in, as my previous guest, Don Smith, would say, in the process of emergence. So how do you remain, given that you're in this ever-moving sort of liminal space, let's say, how do you remain resolute? There's optimism, pessimism, are the two binary sort of elements that are probably always always there. Well, a part of it goes, there's two parts to it for me. Part of it is that I just am a person that's passionate about this issue. And I'm, like I said earlier, I just value purpose and mission as part of my work. And so for me, I would much rather spend my life tackling a very complicated, seemingly intractable issue Mm -hmm. than ignoring it and living in ignorance of whatever. So in that sense, I do feel aligned, even though it's obviously very frustrating. But I think that the more important piece is that as hard as the top, you know, the top line indicators, the overall trend lines around this issue remain discouraging. But the people and the work and the innovation in this space is phenomenal. And every day you meet and exchange with and learn from all kinds of people from all over the world with all kinds of different entry points to this topic. You learn phenomenal things. You learn and you learn things. You learn approaches and ways of thinking about huge, huge issues like food systems or energy systems or new technologies. So there's just never a dull moment. It's such an exciting space. And how do you access that data and that information? You just learn. Well, I'm talking more just about people than I am about like data or information. But I mean, the ecosystem now of, of think tanks, of you know, NGOs of output from from companies, conferences, webinars, you know, different types of forums that you can participate in so easily now through through Zoom. You know, the ecosystem of this space is so exciting and it's so sustaining. And you will always and it's sort of a concluding 
not really pitched because it's already happening. I mean, I see people that are finishing grad school or coming into sort of this job market now, and they are so sophisticated. They are so impressive. You know, they're coming armed with a baseline knowledge of this issue that is way ahead of what I had when I was in my 20s and, you know, just starting out in this. Well, I wasn't in this space, but my point is that's really encouraging. I mean, you see a level of sophistication there that really signals at least the future is going to be different. At least there's going to be a lot of new thinking in the future, in the next couple of decades, whether or not it will, you know, resolve things in ways that are satisfying and acceptable is another question, but like, at least the, at least we'll, we'll be showing up, I think more and more with more and more tools and, and innovative thinking to address the problem. What do you think your natural gifts or talents are? Oh God, this is such a hard yeah. question. Natural gifts or talents. I think I'm good at seeing the horizon. Mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm a good macro thinker. I'm good at thinking, synthesizing, understanding what's in front of us, what types of developments to expect. But also at the same time, able to deal with micro level data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe yeah, it's a combination of the two. Yeah, no, I think I have both mm-hmm. sides to that coin. I think I'm a, I think I'm a comfortable, I think people are comfortable around me. Mm-hmm. I'm not a judgmental person. Back to my sister. That's mm-hmm. another thing you asked about my, the influence. My sister is one of the least judgmental people that I know. And I think I have some of that too. I don't, I make people comfortable. Um, I make people at ease and sort of, comfortable sharing and opening up. I think that's something I get complimented on a lot, at least. I think I have a good sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or not. We need to in this and face what we're facing. Absolutely. What, what do you value in others? I definitely value humor a lot. I think you have to have levity to get through all aspects of life, professional and otherwise. I value passion. You know, I recently spent a month at a residency at the Bellagio residency that was supported through the Rockefeller Foundation. And I was with a wonderful collection of uh, people who were not just focused on climate issues, came from all kinds of backgrounds, human rights and artists and that kind of thing. And the word that just really stuck with me from all of these people was persistence. Hmm. Everyone just persisted. Hmm. And especially the older members of the cohort that were maybe closer to the end of their careers, they just persisted. They didn't really, anytime this, you know, we talk about how intractable it is and how, you know, discouraging it can be and how people's spirits are down. The people I was surrounded by were just persistent. They just kept going. There wasn't, there wasn't like such a huge, huge emotional investment in every step of the walk. It was kind of like, it's the walk, you know, and it's a long walk. It's not a walk like what happens this month or whether my article gets accepted or I get that job or that client. 
It's about the long-term walk and persisting throughout that trajectory. And that really inspires me because I do have sort of this like, you know, I sometimes I get laden with how, you know, reading the news and all of that, but going back to those, those core values of, of having purpose and, and valuing that and then persisting at it, mm-hmm. you know, just keeping, keeping moving forward. It's funny. I, my interview this week was with Omar Freya, who is, uh, runs a thing called the Collective Diaspora and mm-hmm. out of Bronx. And he just won an echoing green fellowship and he has launched his collective diaspora which is a building a, essentially a global database a network of black and latin cooperatives around the u.s canada africa and uh, latin america and with a network of support black organizations to support these cooperatives because he just believes that it's these marginalized communities and and need to be supported in ways that are outside of the traditional sort of capitalist system. Mm-hmm. And his story is just one that you can be captured in one word. It is persistence. Yeah. And, that, and he recognized Pers- it himself. And when I asked him about what his, you know, it, it was perseverance and persistence. Absolutely. Came through. So I think it is something that exists with people in this uh, community. Uh, that are working behind the scenes. And it's interesting when you talk about a long, a long walk, a long road, it just makes me think of someone like Mel- Nelson Mandela as well. Mm-hmm. And his book, the, the, the long uh, walk to freedom, I think it was called that. Yeah. It, you know, you, you're caught up in the, we get caught up in the moment thinking, Oh my goodness, it's awful. Everything's falling apart. We're, we're in a, a calamitous situation, but. You've, if you have to look back at history of all the great progress, progress that's been made where things seem dire. And yet, you know, when you look for back and think, well, actually we, we did make progress. We did, uh, yeah. achieve success, well, success, emergence. We emerged to a better world. And I think in my interview with John Alexander, I referenced the Antonio Gramsci, you being partially Italian, the communist theorist who talks about, he said, uh, what's the quote in, while the old world is dying, a new world is emerging, monsters will rise up. And I think, you know, we are in that place where our old world is passing and we are, a new world is emerging. Now, whether that be post-capitalism or whatever the system is, John would call the, the citizen story, we are, I think we are moving to a different world where new systems and a new orders will both be formed new may, and maybe new, new organizations beyond the UN, maybe similar to what you're talking about. When you say that you could find this, this, this 20% to address it, to affect 80% impact. Maybe it is like, what's the, the climate? alternative to the g7 maybe that's what is going to be formed exactly and i think Mm -hmm. that's what we have to be mindful of and optimistic about and could continue to persist in the belief that we will achieve what we're setting out to achieve and just in conclusion my godson who's 13 now 
when he teases older people, which includes me and his parents, a lot of times the, the subject of teasing has to do with environmental things. Like, for example, he'll say things like, well, I mean, you guys use plastic mm-hmm. or that's just super fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. I mean, these like the combustion engine, I feel to people of that age will feel like old fashioned. Yeah. You know, it just won't. So there's a lot of hope in, in that perspective. Um, there's a lot of hope in communities, representation, voices, like you were bringing up. I mean, environmental justice, the, the whole dimension to this conversation that we haven't touched on a lot that has to do with um, the effects of pollutants and how they disproportionately affect certain communities. Yeah. That's become, while it's not front and center as much as it should be, much more integrated into the discourse Things are changing. We're evolving. And we just have to, what else can we do besides stay on the long road and persist? That's kind of all we've got. Well, as part of that, my my goal with the podcast is to do my little bit and persist in connecting people and building a network of change makers, storytellers and difference makers and domain experts and through random collisions of their ideas. So if you're open to it, I'll certainly be connecting you with Melanie van der Velde, who's a Scottish-based Dutch environmental sort of sustainability sort of a consultant, really interesting story. I think you two could share lots of different ideas and even collaborate. And also, I don't know if you know Mariana Koval, who runs the Invest. Yeah, so a couple of those, definitely. And I think at some point, connect you with John Alexander, because he's also pretty amazing. And then in terms of reciprocity, I then ask you, who do I interview next? So, Yeah, and we talked about this. I would love to see a discussion around AI ethics and structuring rules around AI. I think, you know, we've, we've been through the social media era where it feels like it was left to just kind of the markets to figure yeah. it out and look how that turned out. So... I'll be thinking a lot about that because I think that could be a fantastic conversation on this impossible network of yours. Well, once this is live, I'll ask you to reach out to some people and connect and see how it goes. Absolutely. Absolutely, Mark. Thank you so much for setting this all up. Thank you. Thank you again, Mark. Okay, Jeremy. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And uh, speak soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. That's all for now, folks. Now, here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much and see you next time.